Happy to be with you all tonight. Happy to be aware of being with you all tonight. And I smile when I say that because because uh, we're all you know every if we're here on Tuesday night we're we're all together. But sometimes we're not aware that we're all together, and so that being aware of that fact is just adds a certain kind of uh, immediacy to it. Uh, it allows us to feel the, the living experience of being here, not just the idea of it, not just being walking around with our, like chickens with our heads cut off, actually to, to be, in a sense, empty enough, open enough, aware enough to say, I'm here. And I'm happy to be here because here, this simple word we call here, even though it's not a, actually a place called here, it's kind of vague, but nevertheless, here is very simple. Here is always very simple. Uh, even when, when situations are complicated, even when decisions have to be made, even when, when uh, we know that there are hot spots and we know that they're in this neighborhood as Linda there there are sometimes usually after hours there are there's violence but when we are here and I don't mean just here on Tuesday nights but when we anytime that we are aware of being aware in the present moment our life in that instant uh, shows itself reveals itself to be uh, very simple the story of our life is complicated. The, the challenges of our life are complicated. But the reality of our life, and the real, is only experienced here. It's only experienced uh, where we're alive. It's only experienced in what we call, sometimes call the present moment, even though, of course, there's really no present moment either. There's no place that the present moment stops and the next moment, but we call it the present. And it points to this, this experience of reality, this sense of immediacy. And as soon as I remember, and sometimes the word mindfulness is translated as remembering, you know, re, re, um, putting back together, making whole, uh, uh, recollecting, when I'm, when I'm here, I feel whole. I feel, um, I feel that no matter what I've been through today, uh, I, and whatever residue I'm experiencing of that is very simple. So we often in our meditation practice, if, we, if you were to ask a question while you're meditating, it's, am I aware? Which is another way of saying, am I here and aware? And what am I aware of? Am I aware? What am I aware of? And I can almost guarantee that at that moment that you wake up to being here and being aware, because the question does that itself. It kind of perks you up. Hmm. Am I aware? Yeah, I'm aware here. And what am I aware of? And our, it, our usual preoccupation will be with whatever was going on before or whatever may happen next, but 
when you ask yourself now, what am I aware of? Usually, it will be something in your immediate environment. I'm aware of seeing you. I'm aware of feeling my body a little bit uh, tired. I'm aware of, of the reverberation of the sound of the, of the uh, microphone, you know, the, the loud, you know, the, the, the sound magnification system or whatever. What do you call this thing? <laughs> Amplification system. <laughs> I'm aware of the embarrassment of not being able to find that word. <laughs> But the, the fact of what I'm aware of is, and all I can ever be aware of in here, in, the, in reality, is, is just one thing at a time. And maybe many things coming in succession, as I may be aware of, I could tell even as I was describing what I was aware of, I was moving from thing to thing. But each one of those was a, was a moment. And I could not have been aware of the one that hadn't happened or I hadn't noticed yet. And I, can't be I couldn't be aware of the one that I was already aware of. I can only be aware of one simple experience of here. And one of the ways that the, as any of you who've read the teachings, one of the most famous discourses, very pithy discourses of the Buddha was uh, something I'm just going to encapsulate was this discourse called the all where the Buddha said that essentially the whole of our existence the all is in the seen there's just what's seen in the smell just what's smelled in the taste of just what's tasted in the in the heard just what's heard and the felt just what's felt and the cognized just what's cognized that's all no me, no you, no self at all, just what there is. Life in the immediate reality, and we call it the present, we call it the present moment, we call it now, we call it all these things, but those don't actually, those aren't things, they're not places, but reality, it's pretty simple. So I think of what it's, important to remember in my meditation practice or in anyone's meditation practice is that everything revolves around uh, seeing it's much more instead of building a uh, um, a, um, a resume as a great meditator building becoming a, a Buddhist or even becoming a meditator the purpose of meditation, as Alan Watts says, is always arrived at in the present moment. So what kind of a resume can you make out of... Can you, can you say that my simple reality is better than yours? My, I'm much better at being experiencing the, the totality of life, that six experiences repeating themselves. But what our mind tends to do is it tends to, is to relate everything to me. It says, it says I, uh, I want to be happy, and I'm, because I'm, I'm not quite okay, and something's quite a little bit wrong, I have to figure out how to become happy. 
And because I felt so much dis-ease in my life, one, I'm speaking for all of us, I want to uh, learn to meditate. Uh, and even though the meditation keeps reminding me that it's very simple, that it's not about um, becoming somebody, it's not about having the most special meditation, being the most special meditator, it's just about experiencing reality. And if you do this for a moment, it may not seem, it may seem, oh, there's a moment right now. Reality is very simple. And I notice because my mind is not dwelling on what went before and it's not dwelling on what's next. And I'm not actually in the present moment, I'm not constructing a big complicated life. I feel pretty peaceful, feel okay. But at first, okay seems a little bit bland. Maybe not quite exciting enough. Maybe not the sublime experience that they say meditation leads to. But if you experience this simple and you dwell in it long enough, as one of my favorite teachers, Nisargadatta, put it, you will discover that this simple is permeated. Your own consciousness, your own awareness of it is permeated with a light and a love you've never known, but you'll, you'll rec recognize it at once as your, as your own nature. Yeah. You'll start to find that there's something in this simple awareness that we practice as mindful attention to whatever is happening at one of those six doors of perception, those six senses, that that simple act of paying attention, that in the simple is the sublime. In the, as we sometimes say, in the ordinary is the extraordinary. And it's so easy to miss that. And that's what I try to remember. That it's not about becoming the, as I say over and over, it's not, and I quote the Ajahn Sumedho, it's not becoming the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. It's not being invited to great international Buddhist conferences. It's just being mindful. It's just learning how to let go enough of the imagined past and the imagined future to experience our life, to come out of the story of our life for a moment, to experience it. So when I was sitting tonight, the words simple, the simple is the sublime, kept floating through my mind. But then what kept intruding was what is it that keeps us from experiencing the simple as the sublime? What keeps us from feeling this a deep sense of, of um, connection with the only life that we have in the only place that we have it? And I was thinking of the, of the Buddha's very um, 
a clear teasing out of the common mental states that we fall into, that, we, that also are arising in this simple unfolding present, but mental states that often are so alluring or so hypnotic, entrancing, that we just get carried along by the, the narrative and the view that gets created when we're in one of these particular states. And the one that's most commonly talked about that we, is what's called the wanting mind. The mind that wants something, some pleasurable experience, some uh, that is hungry for some experience that will make me happier than I am. Because that is the, the hidden aim in even being simple in the present moment is to be happy. We all want to be happy. We all want to feel relief. We all want to experience a cessation of suffering, cessation of distress or sadness or depression or anxiety or anything that we experience that's, that's unnerving or, or hard to bear or you know, stressful. All want that, but the first and foremost tendency of mind as an innocent way of trying to find relief is to entering into, into the mind world of the wanting mind, the fantasizing mind, the hoping mind, the expecting mind, the, the um, whatever it is that that I think will make me happier than I am. And I think we, during that so-called 47%, not so-called, but the statistically, supposedly we spend 47% of our time daydreaming. That was a study done at Harvard. I've talked about it a lot here. 2,000 people were beeped, were given beepers and beeped 250,000 times and asked what was in their mind at the moment they were beeped and their their response and they were recording their responses and it turned out that 47% of the time they were daydreaming and they were asked you know what they were why they were daydreaming whatever and they and it was usually trying to make a uh, a task that they were doing easier to bear trying trying to find relief but it was discovered that this life that is so pervaded by the non-present, literally half of our life, that all of that time spent daydreaming, rather than make our tasks easier, it actually makes them harder because when you do wake up to where you are, our consciousness is often jangled from having been so disconnected, so disembodied, cut off from, from this um, vivid reality that we actually live in. And if that per same person could learn, instead of just daydreaming to make a task more simple, instead coming closer to it, trying to feel the texture of it, trying to, to, to if one's doing a repetitive activity, to completely enter into it, feel it through the body, feel the, feel the attention grow and get brighter and brighter until, the, until your attention is shining in its luminosity and it's just seeing what's there so vividly that even the most mundane thing, even the most simple thing starts coming alive, feeling sublime. But 
our habit is to go off into fantasy. And the strongest one is the, is the wanting mind. And the, the wanting mind says, I have, I, I have to have something to be happy. I have to go somewhere. And that definitely implies that the absence of that means I have to be unhappy. So it's essentially turning the, our present reality, the place where the sublime is actually found, into a place where I cannot find relief. That's what the wanting mind does. It entrances us to believe that the present is not quite enough. And that if, if I could satisfy my hunger for relief, which is natural, everybody wants relief. So don't judge yourself about if you are, if you are one of the, the hungry ghosts of the world. The hungry ghosts are beings that are, uh, have little mouths and huge stomachs. They can't be satisfied. And that's, we live in a culture of hungry ghosts. So if you're one of those, it's, it's just that you were sold a bill of goods. You were, you were told that, um, that to have one of everything, I mean, to be one with everything is to have one of everything. To be happy, you have to, you have to acquire. When it's really the opposite of that that brings us relief. True, true happiness is, um, is just being open. Where you realize there's, there's just nothing wrong in a moment of simplicity. In a moment of being here. It's, it's actually sublime. So the wanting mind will, will just create phantasmagorical worlds of, of what, what you need to be happy. And that is an amazing thing about our mind. Is it's very creative and very entertaining. And you will get entertained by your fantasies. I get entertained by my fantasies. Whenever I'm planning a trip or planning what I'm going to do, when I do, there's pleasure associated with that. And then when I actually do whatever activity I was planning, there's pleasure in that too. But while I'm waiting to fulfill that plan, as I, as I talk about a lot, my body is in a state, a subtle underlying state of tension, waiting, postponing a sense of relief until I reach that end of the rainbow, that place that... So all that life lived while I'm fantasizing, while I'm waiting, is life of the sublime that I'm missing. So what we do in meditation practice, how we put that presently arising experience to good use, is we notice. We make a shift from living out of that fantasy, lost in it, living from it, as though I really can't be happy here. Instead of that, we begin to relate to it. We include that state of wanting in our meditation. In fact, the very state of, of wanting, when we notice it, is what brings us back to the sublime, brings us back to the simple. 
We feel, we notice the fantasy, but we expand beyond the fantasy and we notice, oh, this is what it feels like to want. This is what it feels like to long for something. This is what it feels like to be in a state of waiting. So we don't just think about it, we feel it. And our feeling it puts our attention back in our body. We come back to the miraculousness of the fact that we're here. Unexplainable experience that we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we feel, we think. How amazing is that? How easily taken for granted. The most simple facts are the most sublime. We don't realize that this state of wanting throws us off, throws us out of our body, throws us off center. And then we walk around kind of manic. I remember, I remember uh, some, uh, I saw a friend of mine went to see a teacher in India and she came back and she had this she had been deeply affected by being with this teacher and she was just beaming, you know, radiant. And I felt the, I'll call it, I felt the transmission of, of the quality of her mind and I just got lit up. But at that moment, rather than just let myself be suffused with the joy that I felt in seeing her and being with her, my mind immediately went into planning my own trip. <laughs> And then I went, ended up going all the way to India in a state of suspended happiness. <laughs> and uh, I went to India and I said to the teacher, I know already, I've been around the block, I know that the seeker and what I'm seeking are the same thing, but I've come halfway around the world to see you, so I must want something from you. And he said to me, Remove the seeker and remove the sought. And with those words, I went completely unconscious. That whole construction of the seeker seeking happiness, trying to go somewhere, it just evaporated on the spot. I went completely unconscious and I started to, I didn't even know this at the time, but I a guttural laugh just came out and the, and the laugh is what woke me up. And w when I woke up, this, that whole little drama of what I thought would make me, it was gone. And what was there? The simple, the sublime. Not being anyone, no me, no you, no self at all. Just what there is how easy it is. This is why Hakuin Zenji, in the Japanese, says, how sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. I think I might have the passage with me tonight. All beings by nature are Buddha. That just means awake. That's the natural gift of consciousness. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. 
Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst. Like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Lost on dark paths of ignorance, we wander through worlds, dark path to dark path. When shall we be freed from this cycle of endless becoming? O meditation, to this the highest praise. Devotion, repentance, training to the perfections all have their source in meditation. Those who meditate even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature, self-nature that is no nature, go far beyond any doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes, this very place, the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. So Dana Falls says, walk slowly. So it's not just coming on Tuesday night and sitting in formal meditation, but it's finding that this very body, the Buddha, this, this is the lotus land in every step we take, any time, any place, sitting on the bus, sitting on the J Church. I mean, you don't have to have your eyes wide and act anything special, just be aware of being aware. This very body, the Buddha, this very place, the lotus land. Dana Falls says, it only takes a, a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still, and just like that, something inside me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper, and I remember again that life isn't a relay race, that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget to catch myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, to be, and walk slowly into the mystery. So this is this could be about a I'm I'm percolating right now, so it could be a two-hour talk, but don't, I, it won't be. It'll be five more minutes. But I just want to name the other mental states very briefly that entrance us into missing the simple and the sublime. And the second most common, which is the flip side of the wanting mind, the fantasizing mind, is the, uh, is the aversive mind, the mind that says, Something, uh, something's wrong with this 
right now, something's wrong with this moment, and I have to get rid of something, get away from something. It's really just another version of craving, another version of wanting. But it often has the flavor of, of ill will, of irritation, of fear, of anger, um, of um, boredom, different ways that we withdraw from experience. And the aversive mind is another experience where something's arising in the simple unfolding present moment that is hard to bear, that's just not quite, uh, that it's usually in the case, aversion usually follows something unpleasant. And instead of being able to accommodate and metabolize the fact that we have unpleasant experiences, the mind reacts with disliking and then that disliking is followed by real resistance or aversion and that hardens into into uh, mental states of, of ill will or fear and, and then it builds a whole story of, of how and it usually that story is usually projected on the object of our difficulty somebody who who said something to us a, a worker who we characterize as irritating or frustrating uh, and then you, we usually often make a case for the prosecution by getting enough people who also agree that that person's irritating or, or is causing. But in each case, it's actually not that person that's giving, causing us to feel unhappy. It is our inability to accommodate the unpleasantness that we experience around that. And then that unpleasantness turns into a reaction and pretty soon we're, we've just projected it onto onto the object of our, our frustration. And, and so I think, of all, I think of this as it's, of all of us have had neighbors, and always think of it as it's not the neighbor problem. Maybe, it, you know, it seems like it's the neighbor. But if we work with it, we can see that uh, if we took our attention momentarily, or at least expanded our intention beyond the neighbor, to feel what's happening in us. We'll see that our body is in a state of burning, tightness, heart is tight, we're, we're, we're um, agitated, we're off-center, we're not, we're not at home with ourselves. And that easily, and as long as we think that it's the neighbor, we're out of control. Can't manage that very easily. I can't hardly manage my own mind and body, let alone manage the neighbor. And so I increasingly become in a, unable to feel the simple and, and discover the sublime. I'm busy strategizing, planning my revenge or <laughs> escape or whatever it is. And our practice says, take your attention off of, or at least expand beyond the object. Learn how to accommodate that state in your body, to feel it, recognize it, as a very strong weather front, as a changing, as an ever-changing uh, land, you know, feeling scape, and that it's not permanent, and it doesn't define you, and it doesn't define that person. It's the reactive mind being reactive, and it does it all by itself. It's not so personal. So the more we experience that very simply, we see that, yeah, this state, if I if I just get lost in it, relate from it, it makes my present moments into just 
uh, a place that I ha- that is a total obstacle or an enemy to being happy. Instead, by knowing that mental state, feeling it, it, I'm, I realize that it's workable. I can manage it. I put my trust in. We'd say we talk about it in this scene. I put my trust in the Buddha, but really, what it means is I put my trust in awareness, and I meet that experience with kind attention, with, with a kindful awareness, and and that feeling loses a lot of its power, that feeling of anger. And, if, and more than anything, I'll get the, the, the ouch of feeling so aversive or feeling so out of control. And it may have the impact of opening up a feeling which is all too rare while we're busy re- planning our revenge. It opens up a feeling of self-compassion. And then it may even give rise to the feeling of compassion to the one who we think is the cause of our suffering. Because we see that they're probably driven by some kind of inability to be with themselves too. That, that co-worker that talks too much, that doesn't chunk, that doesn't stop. You know, that's one of those people like Cahill Gibran says, people who can't live in the quietness of their hearts live in their lips. So if we really understood that some person can't, the person that's motoring all the time can't be with themselves, then we view them with compassion. And when we know that restlessness in our own mind, which turns out to be the next mental state that we usually uh, get, that causes so much projection of past and future, that's the mind that's worrying and regretting, that's restless and agitated. Can't go into that too much tonight. And the, the mental state of, of dullness and slothfulness, torpor, uh, common mental state that, that often doesn't have a thing to do with being tired. Just the a, just a habit of just shutting down, of, of um, kind of crashing, of, of just having, um, just from moving so fast, from wanting so much, we wear ourselves out. Whenever there's craving in the mind, even in meditation practice, there's a tendency to make excessive effort. And you make excessive effort in meditation practice, you just crash. You just collapse. And then last, I'll just briefly mention the mental state that is the most undermining and debilitating for all of us that makes us think that there's no way we can be happy now. There's no way that the simple is the sublime is the mental state of doubt. Doubt, confusion, uncertainty. But the narrative of doubt is, I'm not getting it. I can't do it. It's not, it doesn't work for me. It often comes in a little form of the comparing mind. Everybody else is getting enlightened but me. I'm, I'm, a, I don't, I'm not so good at this. There's some kind of conclusion, some kind of doubt. And this, um, this little story of doubt is um, when you notice, oh, that's doubt in your mind. No problem. That's doubt. Feel it in your body. Brings you right here. You don't notice the story of doubt. You start acting out of the feeling of doubt. Life becomes almost unworkable. It just feels like a terrible place to be. 
The only place where we can find life turns out to be a place that doesn't feel like it's okay. And this is the hypnotic trance of the doubting mind. Great news is we can wake up out of that trance. We can notice this is doubt, this is worry, this is regret, this is anger, this is desire. And these experiences in and of themselves in a moment are simple and they are sublime. They are the manure of our practice. You don't need to look farther than, than this for your life to be complete, full, enough. It's a beautiful description of what happens in a little reaction. When I sat this afternoon, thinking arose. Thinking blotted out awareness. You know, when I was lost in some reaction in my mind. Thinking was the release of certain electrical impulses, like a spasm or a twitch that resulted accidentally in a thought. Thinking came from the firing of neurons. When awareness didn't rise up to meet the thought, the thought was bent by its nature to substitute a false world for a true one. So this spontaneous eruption, as the traditional teachings say, the, the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagine experiences or objects, or, or more, more ancient yet, the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion, uh, effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. This tendency of mind is, um, if we can notice it, if we can notice our mind erupting in plans, in memories, in, in all the things that we usually get lost in, and know that it's happening, know that there's the effusion of thoughts right now, know what we're feeling in a moment, then everything becomes the, the cause of our, our, um, our happiness and well-being, cause of our coming home to the, the simple, coming home to the sublime, right where we sit. So please don't ignore the near and search for truth afar. Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. That's Ryokan. So let's sit a little bit. Don't go anywhere yet. Notice how your mind is waiting for the end. the Buddha, do not pursue the past, do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is, the future is not yet come. Look deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. The uh, practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day 
one who knows the better way to live. So may all beings awaken to the simple, may all beings awaken to the sublime, may all beings live with ease, may all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, may all beings be liberated. Thanks for your generosity, thanks for your presence, the generosity of your presence and your support, of course. And see you hopefully next Tuesday. The simple is sublime. Say it again, I'm sorry. The simple is sublime. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.